Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans. Welcome to Because WCW. This is episode 14 of the podcast where the big boys play. My name is the Twisted Judas Dinas, and I am, as ever, joined by my esteemed colleague, sports journalist, Liam Hatt. Liam, how are you doing, sir? Oh, I'm still recovering, Dean. I am still recovering from last week. And I imagine you're even worse. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was an amazing week. Four days on the road with Brett the Hitman Hart. Uh, with kayfabe events, we were up and down. We were in uh, Brighton, Cardiff, Manchester, and then finally Friday night in London, where uh, where you were you were primed with a question for the Hitman. I was. I've touched upon it on Twitter. I won't go into too much detail here, but unlike in our previous episode featuring Mike Quackenbush, my lad, um, that I, I hinted that I would be an aggressive fanboy. Uh, no, I kept my composure. Um, Brett did not, and I am very glad that he didn't because it was one of the most fantastic. If it was a marathon, but it was a fa- just a fantastic insight into, you know, what he admitted was the worst period of his life with a concussion and the stroke, and it was, you know, it was it it was a very poignant cherry on the, on an amazing tour cake. I mean, you basically asked Brett for his memories of the the Starcade 99 match against Goldberg, which is where that infamous kick to the head led to him having a serious concussion. You basically got a 53-minute potted history of three years of his entire medical history. Yes. Which, as far as I... and, And details of how his stroke occurred and the accident and finding out how he'd got a concussion prior to that and... The, the severity of that and how WCW didn't necessarily take much notice of it and as far as I'm aware he's he's never spoken publicly about that in that much detail ever before and I don't know if he ever will again you it was you just caught him at the time where it was you know the end of the tour and he was I've got to say London he was he was a lot more open in London than um, than he was anywhere else I think he was in a kind of it's the last night and I don't give a shit kind of mode yeah basically but um yeah like the the whole topic was was an interest of mine because you know in this day and age the the whole concept of large multinational wrestling companies neglecting things as serious as concussions is you know it's a, it's a huge red flag in this day and age back then people overlooked it a lot and that, this was a great example a very tragic example of that especially how Brett would, would you know in Brett's mind there is a link between that concussion and the stroke he had when he came off the motorbike so yeah, um, yeah it was uh, and uh, as I've also documented on Twitter we're going to do our best to help open some eyes towards that and whatever happens I think we're definitely going to have to do a, a special episode and just and just chat about the Brett Hart tour in general and pay tribute to one of our favourites Definitely. Um, one thing that Brett did mention about, and this is common with with stroke survivors, is that it affects his emotional balance. So um, he can get quite 
emotional, quite upset relatively easily. He has to just take a, take a moment or two just to let it, it pass and then he's okay, which I was uh, I was unaware of. And therefore, on night one, I did make Bret Hart cry. Um, I was feeling quite bad about this uh, until on night four when Liam made Bret Hart cry. So not only is w, because WCW the podcast where the big boys play, it is the podcast that makes Bret Hart cry. <laughs> I don't know how to follow that. Yeah, I, <laughs> I basically have I basically have like a, a stock question that I always like to ask people, which is like if you could go back in time and change one thing in your career, what would it be? And yeah, you know, often you get things like you know I would have had a match with so and so, or I would have signed for this promotion, or in Dixie Carter's case, she basically without directly saying it said that she'd have never have signed Hogan and Bischoff to TNA. And so I asked this to Brett, and he kind of oh, that's a good question, and he paused, and he paused again. He goes, yes really good question and then he says I'd probably have tried to stop Owen and then just started uh, getting rather upset and at this point I wanted the ground to swallow me up I'm like oh my god what have I done there I am in my hometown in front of my friends talking to my my childhood hero and I've made him cry yeah not good I hope you're proud of yourself Dean I would never do anything like that I, I didn't ask that question again let's say that much <laughs> But um, but yeah, after a week on tour with Bret Hart today, it was back to the day job. <sighs> Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because if... Anyway, should we get on with the podcast? Please. We have a special guest with us. Do we? Does this count as a special guest? You know, because he's, oh, he's, you know, he's been here before and all that. Guess who's back? Back again? Yeah, I suppose we're carrying on that rich WCW tradition of repeating our mistakes, aren't we? Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. Um, and we have uh, we have our our friend of the show, uh, Mr. Showbiz Paul Benson from Hooked on Events. Good evening, Paul. Hello, Dean. Hello, Liam. Yeah, that's actually probably the nicest intro I've ever been given on a podcast, so thank you for that. Well, I'd, I'd like to think, rather, rather than a returning guest, I'm just sort of becoming that battered old sofa in the corner that doesn't get much attention, but every now and again, it just feels like the comfiest thing in the world, so you just need to go and leg out on it. Um, but nine times out of ten, you ignore it like the plague because it's got springs and fleas and some very questionable stains. <laughs> And full of fleas and questionable stains, it's Paul Benson. <laughs> how, how are you doing? Are you, uh, what are you up to at the moment, then, Mr. Benson? Um, I'm very good. That sounds distinctly like David Brent's introduction in the Office Christmas special, doesn't it? You know, I'm doing a few more of these, a few PAs, a few nightclubs, things like that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, no, I, well, Hooked on Events has got quite a busy summer coming up. We are, so our big thing this, uh, this summer is the Jeff Jarrett tour. Um, we're going to bring Jeff over, WWE Hall of Famer, for four-date tour in Edinburgh, Cardiff, Sheffield, and London. So hopefully we'll see a few guys out for that. But we've also got a few other bits and bobs going on. We've got the Money in the Bank party in London. First ever Money in the Bank viewing party for us this Sunday. We've got um, SummerSlam coming up in August. I've also turned my hand to, and this is a bit scary, I'm running the Wrestling Media Con in Manchester in September, which is uh, a bit of 
a bit of the traditional wrestling sort of meet and greet type affair with the photos and stuff with the old legends put a bit of with some podcasters like we've got uh colt cabana we've got sean waltman coming over we've got all the guys from wrestle talk from cultaholic um then we're gonna have also on top of that quite excitingly we're gonna have some actual wrestling there we've got the return of impact wrestling to the uk for a show and we've got two nights with the rev pro shows as well um nice. so i keep looking at my task list on that and basically pooing my pants because um it's by far the biggest thing i've undertaken but luckily the take up on it so far has been fantastic so i can actually sleep at night which is great and i know that is september the 8th and september the 9th isn't it it is september the 8th and the 9th now mr benson last time you're on we rather cruelly gave you uh uncensored 1996 with the doomsday cage match sorry about thanks so, for that thanks for that yeah so to make it up to you we we said to you pick a card any card and uh, what show did you come up with well, um, I toyed with the idea of going for something early 90s where you get some genuine quality, a bit of historical depth and some great wrestling. But then I decided it might be quite good to punch myself in the face. Um, so, no, I only only gently punch myself in the face. More, more flick my ear, really, quite hard. So, in the end, I decided to delve right into the late 90s, the bit that I'm really familiar with. And I've picked out Spring Stampede 1998. <laughs> <laughs> There's a very strange noise of like an, an old creaky door opening. Sorry, that was me leaning back in my squeaky <laughs> So it just it just sounded really ominous. It sounded like a large army of mice were cheering your decision. <laughs> Yay! Help it! Help it! <laughs> so Spring Stampede 1998 now. This is an interesting card because, uh, as, as you mentioned, Liam, it's it's uh, beauties in the eye of the beholder and all that. Yeah, honestly, I mean, I've I've about four different times in my lifetime I've swung between whether or not this is utter crap or if it's actually a good pay-per-view. It can depend on your taste in wrestling, the moment you watch it, the day of the week you watch it sometimes feels like. Uh, uh, we'll go into this match by match and explain exactly how, but I, I've got a good mind to rename it Schrodinger Stampede. <laughs> is it shit or is it good? So uh, an opening video montage shows the, the power struggle within the NWO. This is the, the running story throughout the show between Hogan, Savage and Nash. Savage promises to beat Sting for the World Heavyweight title at this show. Hogan doesn't want anyone else from the NWO other than him being the WWE World Champion in an angle that you could say uh, art imitates life, surely. Um, there is no hyperbole from Tony Giovanni other than to say that WWE is the greatest in professional wrestling, which pretty much anyone in, in that job would do, saying that their promotion's the best. Uh, joining him in the broadcast booth is Mike Tanay and Bobby the Brain Heenan. And then in our first Because WCW moment of the night, it is announced that the main event world title match is to be a no DQ match. So, you know, good that they announced that after the pay-per-view had started rather than before, because, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't want to sell the show to people and make them want to buy it, would you? Was it just me? around? You know, we'll see a lot of very constant themes from the late 90s and the Attitude Era, as we always label it, but is it just me? Is suddenly deciding the night of a pay-per-view that the main event is no disqualification, this was done to fucking death at this point. I mean, I think pretty much every main event of every pay-per-view of every WWE and WCW 
event for for three straight years was oh this is no disqualification. Uh, Austin Rock X Seven. I remember they they did that announcement right at the start, didn't they? Yeah. Well, the um, by by means of comparison, um, the very next week was WWF Unforgiven in your house, which was Dude Love and um Steve Austin, which wasn't a no DQ match, but it was one where there was freely uh, McMahon, Mr McMahon was freely interfering. Yeah, um, and then they really took. I mean, the the trope hit fever pitch the month after, then it over the edge. That was probably the only time it was done in a really, really excellent way, in my opinion. When they had the, uh, was it Pat Patterson saying this? This is a reminder that this match is falls count anywhere. It's been done to death ever since. I don't remember that one. That was like the famous archetypal corrupt boss makes up the rules as he goes along it's been done oh, so many right. times since and mean, here on be- like, the can- like the Canadian rules yep uh, Super Brawl 2001 Ric Flair tried to do it with Steiner and Nash there's a bunch of examples and we're going to end up covering all of them eventually and I'll have to hark back to good old episode 14 when I when I started this running gag marvellous so first match up is Saturn versus Goldberg um, Saturn's a member of Raven's Flock. He's joined by Kidman. Goldberg's music hits. The crowd erupts. To be fair, the crowd do erupt, and WCW have mics up the crowds properly. Uh, MC Dave Penzer announces that uh, Goldberg is attempting to maintain his unbeaten record, which Mike today says is now 73-0. and Now, whether that was legit or not by that stage, no one knows, but they... Of, in, in true WCW, Liam, they managed to take a great, legit concept and fuck it up by just exaggerating the numbers until no one believed in it. Oh, mate, I don't think the numbers were ever legit, to be honest. They just played around with it willy-nilly. But people got behind it and people were counting it, weren't they? I mean, by the were time they it... not? I thought, sorry, I thought that early in the streak, sort of until it got absolutely stupid, sort of around the time he won the title, I thought they kept it legit. Cause, like, yeah, because I thought they kept it legit because obviously there were house show matches and stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was it was well. very much like Pele's one thousand goals, weren't it? Where he was counting preseason friendlies and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, it might have been Romario. Romario. It was Romario's goals. thousand yeah. that carried all those daft ones. Yeah. yeah. Pele, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm now my mind has now gone to uh, to Bill Goldberg uh, advertising medication for erection problems. As you do. Yeah. Anyway, enough about Gold, Bill Goldberg's erection or lack thereof. Um, it is announced that he will be challenging for the US title on Nitro tomorrow. That's Bill Goldberg, not Pele. Um, Saturn looks very odd with a full head of hair, has to be said. So um, after dominating the start, um, Saturn takes over on Goldberg. Goldberg still cannot sell to save his life. And his um, his offense does look brutal. I think, again, this is something from doing the tour with Bret Hart just now, where he talks about how how little Goldberg protected his opponents and uh, you know which is really the be all and end all of wrestling then again you don't really want to mess with Saturn uh, a drop kick from the apron to the floor sends Goldberg into the steps uh, Mike today makes a nice touch of asking how the Denver altitude will affect their stamina which uh, is a really nice little touch but then Tony Schiavone hears this picks up on it and then repeats it about four different times throughout the show um, Saturn goes for a springboard back elbow Goldberg's in the wrong place completely misses catching him the back of Saturn's head hits the floor which looks very nasty indeed um, Goldberg then screws up running the ropes makes Saturn miss a drop kick he then screws up a short clothesline this match is generally quite horrible in that respect he hits the spear Saturn blocks the jackhammer which is a first um, 
Goldberg reverses a top rope Hogan runs, uh, attempting to a press slam. The whole flock run in, get dispatched by Goldberg in seconds. Saturn attempts the rings of Saturn. Goldberg powers out, gets Saturn into a fireman's carry. He then tries to transition into a jackhammer, which he barely executes, nearly drops Saturn, gets the win. It was eight minutes long, which Goldberg clearly wasn't comfortable with, and, and it was just it was just a horrible, clumsy match. Um and you know, and then the next night Goldberg would be US champion. And the, the the thing with this was that you know the crowd absolutely loved him, but he was nowhere ready for what what he was being pushed at. No, sorry, I, I he wasn't. And I I think the aura of this pay per view intrigues me. And um, and to be honest, when I think of ninety late nineties WCW in the mid card, one of the best things I thought they did was sort of that that sort of grouping around this time where you had um, the flock sort of messing with. Um, DDP, Goldberg, guys like that, especially those two. And I don't know. I, you're right. You're absolutely right. Everything you say, it was a sloppy match. Um, Saturn didn't help matters. He was way below what he can normally do. Goldberg is, you know, Bill Goldberg in '98. But I don't know. I just really enjoyed it. I, I thought that there was always sort of a sense that Goldberg worked better in his early days. You had you couldn't give him any one-on-one threats, and the Flock was a brilliant opponent because the, those guys could kind of come out of nowhere. They could be like flunkies or um, like the foot soldiers in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and he could swat them away. But it would it would prolong things. Um, and I just thought I, I really enjoyed it. It was it was a decent opener, not good wrestling-wise, but I thought it added to what Goldberg does. I like a lot of what the Flock did back then, and I just thought, yep, set the tone quite nicely for what was to come. Yeah, this is a great example of the the manner in which you can look at this entire bloody pay-per-view with a glass half full or a glass half empty perspective. Case in point, glass half full, Goldberg is getting to a point where he's really clicking with the audience now. He is he is about to become one of the made guys. And he's come out here, the the crowd are ravenous for him. And this is, for the first time, I believe, on pay-per-view, he's got a really mouth-watering collision. You're getting to the point now where, after watching this big, badass prospect boxer tear through tomato cans and go 20-0, he's getting his first formidable opponent. There's always a buzz about when any sort of competitor, whether predetermined or not, steps up to that level. And um, so so this match, to, to that to the extent of what Paul was saying, yeah, people were all over this because of that. Uh, but glass half empty, the he Goldberg was not ready for it. Um, he everything that was accomplished here could have been done in three or four minutes, like your typical squash. But then that's a bit of a disservice to Saturn, who, as we find out in the summer, they do have plans to use Saturn in a decent mid card role as well. Um, so it's a no-win situation, and to touch upon our little art of the opener thing we always do, yeah, this is a terrible choice for opener, because if I remember correctly, they built up this collision quite well on a few weeks' worth of nitros. People were looking forward to this, and going by the reaction Goldberg got, that reaction was coming even if he was a few matches into the card. Uh, something like the match that will follow this would have been a great opener. So, you know, depending on what way you look at it, it's either a great start or it's a ridiculous head scratching start and that's just the beginning. We're gonna be we're gonna be tearing ourselves apart looking at all this and I'm curious as to what you guys will think once we've covered it all in depth, whether you think this is a thumbs up or a thumbs down card. The the one you know, one of the positives you have to say about Goldberg is that in a company that is 
has a, a main event roster dominated by 40 plus ex WWF stars. Here we've got someone who, by accident or design, is a homemade superstar or is about, is, is, probably isn't a superstar at this stage, but is going to grow into a homemade superstar. And it kind of makes you wonder if Paul Heyman was booking WCW at this point rather than Eric Bischoff, how different this match would be. Because, you know, Paul Heyman's the absolute master of, of hiding weaknesses. It would have been very interesting. That, that's one of those big wrestling what-if fantasy booking scenarios, isn't it? What if Paul Heyman had got his hands on Bill Goldberg? And I think it's one of those things where you know how you can see how well those guys get on nowadays and how much respect they've got for one another. So having Heyman when he's really at his peak creatively with Goldberg when he was at his peak athletically could have been really special. But would he have paid him? (laughs) (laughs) I think the big, the big crux of that for me is we know what Goldberg's biggest obstacle was, even when things were going brilliant for him. And that is the, the politics of those with creative control who did not want to give it up. And it, and it sabotaged it by the end of the year. Their can't miss prospect to follow the can't miss NWO was, uh, was pretty much messed around with. And, that brings me back. I remember a very good interview Paul Heyman gave. Well, I think he spoke to several media outlets, but he did speak in depth with Power Slam back in the day when he was being linked with um, potentially taking over the book at TNA. And he was talking about how he would want pure unadulterated control over the direction of the company on screen. And he re- he said, no exaggerations, I would have just a, a ruthless cull of everyone who was past it, everyone who's coasting by name value. Can you imagine him trying to do that in 1998 WCW and attempting to do it to allow the Goldbergs and the Ravens and the Bookertees to actually attempt to keep the hot streak the NWO ignited going? It's something that, you know, for all his faults, Vince Russo had a very similar mindset and tried to do the same. All right, he, he tried to do it with an absolute ham fist, and probably really cripple himself politically while he was trying to do it. But the point is, and Heyman Heyman's probably would have been on slightly easier ground with TNA because they were properly failing at the time. But if he'd have come into 98 WCW and just taken a taken a pen to all the names of those big stars like your Hogan's and your Nash's and what, whoever else, it would have just gone, you would have crippled the promotion overnight because for all their faults, those guys had some value not all of them you don't need to have the whole card full of old guys but you need some established star power to bring those bring your ravens and bring your crest bonoirs on and if you'd have taken them all out of the equation like russo wanted to and maybe Heyman would you'd have been left with a shell of a company you need to be a bit more subtle and i think you just need to find out what you've got and use it a bit better which obviously when you've got a guy like hogan and some of the egos that are running rampant in wcw at that time it's difficult but maybe it's a case of managing the people and weeding out the ones that can't be worked with and, and moulding the ones that can. Yes, is it? It's a case of how to pull the trigger because that's the thing. Like There was absolutely no way that some of these guys were going to work with the the Ravens and the Benoits and that because they, they had absolutely no intention of doing that. That was one of the most documented big problems mm. with WCW at the time. So it would have been interesting. It would have been a massive dumpster fire, I think. Indeed. Right. Well, let's crack on. We we go straight into match number two. And this is actually, this is one thing I have to say about this pay-per-view is given some of the other things we've seen over, over the past few episodes, this is 
pretty much action, action, action. There's very little in the way of skits in between matches or interviews. We, we are just going between one match and another. So this is uh, Chavo Guerrero Jr. against Ultimo Dragon. Um, Chavo is accompanied by his uncle, Eddie. Uh, Dragon's gear uh, is in the colors of the Mexican flag. I don't know if that's just a coincidence. The commentators talk about how Eddie has cost Chavo matches recently, and Eddie has given him some, some tough love coaching. And, and this is the theme of the match, that Eddie is coaching Chavo uh, at ringside. So Chavo's in control for the first several minutes, first with mat work and submissions, and then with faster aerial moves, while Eddie looks kind of disinterested. Um, the story is that you know, Chavo's doing very well against the more experienced Dragon. Chavo does occasionally get caught by Dragon, like to Eddie's annoyance, but Chavo keeps springing back each time. Uh, Chavo goes to the top, but the uh, Ultimo Dragon kicks his legs out, and Chavo lands hard. It looks fantastic. It takes a lot of uh, agility and suppleness to get your legs up to that point. Um, Dragon takes over on the offense, lands his assay moonsault to the outside, um, and while Chavo sells, Eddie yells at him about the consequences if he loses this match. He'll make things twice as hard for him. Um, Chavo lands a great-looking corkscrew plancher to the floor on Dragon. Both men go down from a double clothesline. Um, Chavo accidentally catches Dragon low with a drop kick as Dragon's coming off the top rope, but he allows Ultimo Dragon time to recover while Eddie screams at him to take advantage and he's absolutely losing his rag, um, which looks great. Uh, a minute later, Dragon catches Chavo in the Dragon Sleeper for the win. Um, so uh, it's a, it's a good but not great match but the match was basically a backdrop for the Guerrero's angle um, and Eddie's facials at, at ringside were were superb uh, Paul what do you think of this one you know interestingly um, this is the only match since I've uh, since I've been well I've done two pay-per-views with you guys now I actually went back and watched it again because I was kind of I, I'm not a big Chavo fan um based on sort of the last few years and I realized my eyes had glassed over while I was watching this match and I sort of really sort of, sort of checked myself and went you know what you like Chavo back in the day he's a good talent or he certainly was so go back and watch it again because I was not feeling it after the first time around and I really I again it's something I quite enjoyed I thought there was the Eddie wrinkle was needed because it added some personality to the match and it added some personality to what Chavo was doing gave him some stakes but I thought that aside, I thought these two put on a really decent match. Mm. Um, and I thought if Chavo was someone who's a bit more established, as would happen in, in later years, um, you could they could put on something really special. I love Ultimo Dragon. He's one of my favorite ever cruiserweights. So, yeah, you know, I've, I've not got anything hugely interesting to say about it, but I just just that I'm glad I gave it a second chance and enjoyed what I got. Yeah, it's, it's scary. We've brought it up before, and I'll, I'll probably bring it up a couple of dozen times before we reach episode 50, if we ever reach episode 50. Uh, but it's scary how Chavo Guerrero Jr. would, a couple years after this, at least in my opinion, you know, in the opinion of a lot of other guys as well, he became the man. He was one of the top 10 guys in the world. It sounds crazy to say, especially considering the stigma over him in recent years, as you touched upon, Paul, but... Yeah, when when WCW was a, was on life support and eventually went down the drain, Chavo Guerrero was absolutely fantastic as the cruiserweight champion. Not only having great matches, not only carrying guys like Rey Mysterio when they uh, phoned it in, but he pretty much made 
Shane Helms, he really helped bring guys like Shannon Moore and that, like by association as well, because he was working with them on a weekly basis. It's incredible to think he had that period where he was so good. And what I love about this match is the. It is a you know, you're not gonna I don't think you're gonna have a bad match between Ultimo Dragon and even a even a relatively green Chavo but the storytelling here I absolutely adore this. Um when you mentioned Dean the whole uh, oh yeah Eddie's gonna ride him twice as hard. If I remember correctly that was actually like a they they were treating this as a formal stipulation on the mat that if Chavo won Eddie was gonna ease up on riding him hard and if he lost, which he did, he was gonna be twice as on him. So um yeah, that's one thing I love about professional wrestling is the fact that stipulations like that and Shawn Michaels, Rick Martel, no hitting each other in the face. It's the only place you can hear things like that stipulated onto fight sport. It's brilliant. I love it. But um, yeah, when can, can you imagine like if that was a, you know, the football match? You know, if uh, if Liverpool win the Champions League, Jurgen Klopp's going to take them all to Disneyland or something. Yeah, <laughs> but um. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to see it personally. <laughs> but um, no, like for, for me, like the, the whole bit where he catches him low by accident, that itself, that was a brilliant little thing. Because if you know your WCW, that whole thing steeped in history because there was a thing in the 80s with Barry Windham failing to capitalise on it. And they redid it when Windham and, and Dustin Rhodes were a tag team in the early 90s. Uh, Dustin Rhodes should have taken advantage. I think they're fighting Steamboat and Douglas. I could be wrong and Rhodes does not capitalise and Wyndham is at, like Eddie is here he's screaming at him to, to capitalise and he did not that led to a breakup. that led to Wyndham turning hill that match maybe and um, that led to you know, if you guys remember the Lone Wolf of 93 mm. he had that decent little NWA title run but um, yeah so seeing all these little moments were great little harken backs and flashbacks and the best part the cherry on the cake for the storytelling for me is this is all leading to Chavo absolutely snapping and him and Eddie in the summer were brilliant the Eddie Guerrero is my favourite wrestler t-shirt Pepe the horse we we did if you guys go back to episode 2 we cover Bash of the Beach 98 where they have their hair versus hair blow off and Chavo shaves his own head afterwards he was fantastic here as well um, yes storytelling wise this is this is just such a great match so match number 3 is for the WCW World Television title Chris Benoit challenging Booker T. Unlike normal TV title matches, this one has no time limit, so we've got decisive winning because they've had two time limit draws previously. Um, so if you remember, and, and this is something that uh, Lord Stephen Regal particularly capitalised on, TV title matches generally are a 10-minute time limit, and if obviously it goes to a time limit draw, the champion retains. Um, so Tanay notes that Benoit's never won a championship in WCW yet. Um, he's looking very focused and intense, goes on the offense, aiming for Booker's legs, which uh, the commentators mentioned you know, would take away Booker's best known offense, the, the uh, axe kick and the Harlem hangover and things like that. Uh, Benoit accentuates the dangers of Booker's kicks by bumping and selling for them with a real snap to it and really you know, high, exaggerating the sell just to put those kicks over. Um, because of the stipulation, the match has a more deliberate pace than the normal TV title match. Benoit lands the diving headbutt but hurts himself too much to make a cover. So even in kayfabe terms, it's a fucking stupid move. Um, Shivani mentions, I know you hate it, Liam, and so do I. Um, Shivani mentions that the 10-minute mark has passed as Benoit hits three German suplexes in a row. He then executes a belly-to-belly -belly suplex off the top, which lands Booker on the 
his shoulders and neck. Both men sell the move for a long time. Benoit makes a groggy cover for a two count, and the drama is really starting to build now. Booker comes back, hits an axe kick, but Benoit pulls referee Mickey J into the way in a move that looks really contrived. Uh, and then this is what really annoyed me. With the referee down, Benoit goes for the cripple crossface as the commentators speculate if Booker's tapped or not. And it's just, I don't get this. Why would you go for your finishing move when you know the referee is down because the match can't end? And you know the refs down because you've already pulled the pulled them in the way. It just it's just one of those things in wrestling that really annoys me when someone goes for a cover or someone goes for a submission and they know the ref's not there. Um, Booker gets to the ropes, so Benoit releases it, even though the referee is down. Again, this makes no sense. <laughs> WCW. Um, he goes to revive um, referee Mickey J. Booker T leaps over the bending ref to hit Benoit with another axe kick for the pin it's kind of a creative finish but at the same time a bit of a dodgy finish but i thought this was a, a great match though um just with a, a little bit of a a, a a logic floor at the end but um yeah really like this match paul um yeah i like of course i like this match I, two of these two uh two of my favorites even back in the late 90s i remember there were, there were probably the two that i really wanted to see move on and frankly probably the two that were most equipped out of the wcw mid card to go up and be stars as we saw later but i want your guys opinion on this actually so so i was watching this and i was looking at it and i was watching these two literally when they faced off at the start of the match actually thinking these two just look like stars from the off you know already, already they'd changed their look a lot in later years but you could tell already that there were kind of main events in waiting. Now, what I'm wanting to know is whether I'm looking at that with the benefit of hindsight, because I didn't watch this live. I didn't watch WCW pay-per-views in the late 90s. We didn't get it. But was it always a case that these guys were pegged for superstar or stardom? Should I say they weren't superstars, were they? But big stardom. Or am I just looking back with what I know 20 years later and saying, oh, it was obvious. It was obvious all along. Because they're crisp. They look like wrestlers. They look like main event wrestlers. But... It wasn't there at the time, so you know, what's what's your thoughts? Well, you know, you hear that cliche a lot in modern day wrestling. Oh, the wrestler doesn't connect with a the crowd; they need to connect with a crowd. Mm. I think that is exactly what it is here. Is these two guys, you know, they are good wrestlers, but at this point in time, they had also well and truly connect with a crowd, where the crowd were willing to accept them in gradually elevated scenarios and both of them had flirted with it oh, we had a really good discussion with uh, Mr Quackenbush on the last one where the outsiders faced Harlem Heat and at this point Harlem Heat you know had been around WCW for years they'd been in some quite high, high profile matches uh, but the closest they got to a serious higher level standing was that well, that tedious fucking Chicago street fight uh, that we covered when we last had you on, Benno. And one of yep. the things we said about that was that, you know, that it dragged on, there was a lack of direction. You could tell Booker T was a little bit lost out there and he weren't quite ready. And we were saying about that with the whole thing. And, and these experiences, you know, wrestling the outsiders and having someone like Scott Hall, who I really believe in that match at Halloween Havoc, really just, just carried those two through having such an important match especially where the crowd are not reacting or the way they're expecting them to even though they bloody should have little things like that 
help them get the sort of connection to the crowd and how to carry themselves, as you said, as main eventers. And in the case of Benoit, this is a guy where a lot of the time before he turned out to be an absolute shithouse of a human being, this was a guy people were saying was um, he, he doesn't have charisma, he's not at all. He, he wasn't really a talker. He could give you a pretty straight laced line, but he couldn't do a contrived promo. But as far as his charisma, I always disagreed because the man could walk down to the ring with no posing, no showmanship. He then entered the ring as normal as you like and and the crowd are all with him because of his reputation. And then he'd, he'd just flash one glance to one side of the audience and they'd all come up on their feet. Because sometimes less is more. And he had that command of an audience just by having his reputation of in-ring work preceding him and just by knowing how to minimize his movements and making everything he did every every little show of emotion he did have on his face mean something so i i really think they they brought everything together to the point where yeah they they did come across like that it's not retconning at all i don't think i think for me watching at the time the thing with wcw as we have, have mentioned is that by and large the main event matches were not good wrestling matches. They were dramatic. The crowd were instant, but they weren't good wrestling matches. These kind of undercard matches were good wrestling matches. So you'd, you'd look forward to them because you knew you'd get a good entertaining match out of them. But also you'd think you, you would think, why can't these guys be in the main event? Because I'd get much better main events, but I don't think, I, I didn't think it would ever kind of happen. I thought they were going to be kind of stuck in the mid-card forever. And really, when you think about it, it was only when the old guard started disappearing um, that you know, they needed to push new people up, like Booker, like Benoit, in you know, the 2000s era. Um, it was almost you know necessity rather than, than design. But... Um, I totally get where you're coming from, Paul. That yeah, they 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 look the part. They totally are, you know, th- they are the far and away the best thing on the show. Yep. So there's no mucking around on this show. We go straight into match number four. As Rule Britannia can be heard, it's the British Bulldog. No mention of the, the name David Boy Smith. I don't know why that is, but they yeah, like uh, when Fit Finley was just referred to as the Belfast Bruiser, he's just the British Bulldog now. Um, he's accompanied by Jim Neidhart, whose name is misspelled on the on-screen caption. Well done, guys. <laughs> Um, and his opponent is Kurt Hennig, who is accompanied by uh, Rick Rude. So this is basically just a gathering of Bret Hart's favourite people. Um, Bret Hart knows to be seen on this card. He wasn't injured at this time, was he? I'm not sure, but you definitely wouldn't have uh, seen him in this match because it was actually contractually thin ice if they had Bret associate with the Anvil or Bulldog. Because uh, the WWE apparently the WWE lawyers would have been on him like stink on shit. But I'll tell you yeah. one thing. Um, I'm, I don't know if he was injured per se, but he was certainly making an appearance on the show the following night on Nitro because he would help a certain someone regain a certain title from a certain mm-hmm. guy who won the title on this show. Uh, yeah. Okay. Which is probably around the moment when Brett thought, yeah, fuck WCW. No one formally <laughs> asked him that, but I can imagine, you know, I'm sure he had his issues, but he, uh, you know, he got to wrestle Kurt Hennig in a pay-per-view. He got to wrestle Ric Flair on a pay-per-view. He didn't have yeah. a too bad a start, Starcade aside, but then this happens. He's like, yeah, fuck this. 
So what what was that about? You said like the WWE lawyers wouldn't let him have anything to do with Neidhart and Bulldog? Yeah, I've read it a few times. I'll have to look it up to be super detailed without wrongly citing anything. But yeah, Bar can't say they couldn't have them associate with each other because WWE would have come on top of them for a, for a Heart Foundation thing. I'm not quite sure how that works, but yeah. Even if they didn't call themselves a Heart Foundation or anything like that. I don't know, but yeah, they all, either that or they were just very wary, and because as we know, lawsuits were going back and forth between both sides at this period in time. So maybe they thought, well, what's what's the point in risking, it? especially when mm-hmm. look, let's face it, but at this point, Bulldog and the Anvil are dog shit, as we're about to find out when we cover this match. Whereas yes. Bret Hart misused, he's still a star. So yeah, I just never knew that about uh, about that with Bret Hart, and thanks for telling me that after we've done the tour with him. But never mind. Maybe You're welcome, buddy. If, if he comes back, we can ask him. Because, yeah, Anvil is wearing his uh, his Anvil Heart Foundation jacket as well. Um, but then that's, Jim Neidhart does does like to uh, wear clothes to death. If anyone who's seen pictures of him wearing his free WWE 2K15 t-shirt will know. Oh, I've, um, I've learned so much about Jim An- the Anvil Neidhart from the last week. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and his love for urinating in public. Um, so yeah, so do you, you realise that the last match um, that we had was the only one so far where a wrestler wasn't accompanied to the ring by anyone? Um, so Rude and Neidhart are supposed to be handcuffed to one another, which I'm sure is not the first time either one of them have been in handcuffs. Um, Rude isn't too willing. Eventually they're locked together, and Bulldog starts on the offence against Hennig to a good pop from the crowd. Hennig's wearing a big brace on his right knee, and Bulldog goes straight for it. Um, the commentators, though, they're paying little attention to the match. Instead, they're talking about the two headline matches that are coming up later on. Um, Hennig is doing his usual great job at selling Bulldog's offense. Bulldog puts Hennig in a sharpshooter as a fight develops at ringside. Uh, Neidhart is choking out a police officer. Possibly not the first time he's done, done that either. Uh, as Rude gets himself out of his handcuffs while Neidhart is distracted. Uh, the commentators are acting baffled, despite the fact that it's absolutely blindingly obvious that the police officer is actually Vincent um, in in a costume. Um, Neidhart is now handcuffed to the ring post. Rude is free. Rude grabs Bulldog's leg, which distracts him. Hennig throws him into the corner. Bulldog takes a contrived, not the first and not the last time I'll use that word in this pay-per-view, looking bump over the turnbuckle pad into the ring post. He is knocked out. Hennig makes the cover for the pin. Another awful finish. The camera goes back to ringside where the commentators finally recognize Vincent because his hat's fallen off. Oh, for fuck's sake. Um, It's explained that Vincent had the keys to the handcuff, but we have no idea how he'd done that. Um, None of this has been thought through for more than two minutes. Rude and Hennig beat the crap out of the bulldog and the handcuff Neidhart. No one comes out to save the baby faces, which basically makes them look like dicks for having no friends among the valiant babyface locker room. Just, ah, awful. It was absolutely appalling, wasn't it? It was, um, how can so many guys that I like, you know, the two guys in the match and the two seconds I'm big fans of to one degree or another. And it was just shit. Like they, you know, without meaning to sound sort of too libelous, I can, I can only imagine what pills and drugs these guys were on at the time. Um, because it's just, you know, there's such a shell of what these guys can put together. Even when Hennig comes out to the ring, you just look at him and it's just not Mr. Perfect, is it? Yeah, it's very apt that he's not called Mr. Perfect in WCW because you couldn't sell that. You couldn't sell that this guy is the perfect wrestler, the perfect human being. He just looks like a, 
Ah, he just looks tired. He looks tired. That's what he looks. And and Bulldog always, you know, at this point there was there was not much there anyway. Very interesting that nobody did come out to save him. Did 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 anybody ever interact with Bulldog and Nightheart as colleagues, as comrades in WCW? Or, or, or it just felt like they were an island completely. There was just them two wandering around WCW, interacting with each other and zero other storylines or interactions. All it was just as if the, if you if Thanos had clicked his fingers and they were no longer there, um, would anyone have noticed? Well, the fans didn't certainly fucking interact with him. <laughs> no, quite. It was just a definition of phoning it in, wasn't it? Yeah. It was dreadful. It was absolutely dreadful. Yeah, I've, I've never really been a fan of the whole... It's, it's one of them gimmicks they'll play in wrestling where, oh, you know, they've got to be handcuffed together and you think, oh, you know, the heel plays out what he does on Warner because he's getting his comeuppance. He always finds a way out. So never like that. It's, it's garbage, it's boring, it's tedious. But the thing that really gets my goat here is that the whole way of getting out of it in this instance relies on the fact that no one knows... The uh, NWO crony has replaced an actual law enforcer purely, apparently, purely because they're both fucking black. <laughs> I, I, I can't believe. Point. Yeah, surely I'm not the only one to notice just how fucking ridiculous. And, and fair enough, they've got Neidhart who's seen the whole idea. He's seen it's it's Vincent there, so he started attacking him. But I mean, come on, it's fucking. <laughs> disgust it's ridiculous see i i didn't even realize or notice that he'd replaced anyone i just thought he'd kind of just shown up at ringside dressed as a the police the police officer who tethered them up at the start was black and so is vincent and look at that haha it's like they're both alike it's it's like fucking blazing saddles all over again so what did they do with the original officer do you think he's tied up in just his white boxer shorts somewhere Tied to a post backstage. He's in the back of a Hummer. That's <laughs> he, he probably moved straight on to his next gig, where he was the first man killed in a horror film. <laughs> probably still sell more autographs at a convention than Virgil would. <laughs> Re- replaced police officer, five dollars. <laughs> Gotta make that fuck money. <laughs> right, it's on to match number five. Let's see if uh, these two can save this. It's Prince Iakia challenging Chris Jericho for the World Cruiserweight title. So here comes Jericho looking ridiculous with a microphone. This can only be good. He claims that thousands of fans are chanting his name when they're not. And essentially, the character of Chris Jericho is what Donald Trump is nowadays, but with less power. Um, he kind of had looked into the future and preempted this. And people um, liked Jericho. There is that as well, yes. Um, Jericho cuts a promo on the injured Dean Malenko, calls himself for the man of a thousand and four holds, Daddy O. Um, the crowd are into this, very much into this. And Jericho has has morphed from this generic white meat baby face into a stellar heel character. Um and he is such a good heel that the crowds are all behind the incredibly bland Prince Iakia as someone they want to see dethrone Jericho, um, even though it's obvious that this is just a placeholder till Malenko returns for the big feud. Um, Iakia blocks a top rope splash from Jericho by raising his feet to Jericho's face. He hits a nice aerial offense. Uh, Jericho gets Iakia into the walls of Jericho, but Iakia grabs the ropes. He then reverses the sunset flip into a, a three count, which again, the crowd are... On the, on the edge of their seats thinking they'll get a title change. 
Jericho catches Ikea on the top rope. He goes for the Super Frankenstein. They're both standing on the top rope. Loses his balance. Both men crash to the floor. I'm not entirely sure if this was intentional or not. Uh, back in the ring, Ikea gets a near fall with a Northern Lights suplex. Jericho rolls through on an impressive-looking top rope sunset flip into the walls of Jericho, which makes Ikea tap out. Good action-packed match. Good clean finish. Jericho retains, and Prince Ikea's stock rises as well. Similarly to to how I look back on Booker and Benoit, I remember when Chris Jericho made this transformation almost overnight. There was just like a raw power to this to this new heel character, and he just made you sit up and and pay attention. And I remember back then he, he felt fully formed. He flipped over to this heel, and he felt like he'd almost reached the height of his powers. Does that make sense? Do you know oh, what I mean? It, it yeah. didn't feel like at the time it could get any better. And then you look back now and you look at what Jericho's done all the way through his debut with WWE and all his great career there, his heel character in 2008, all the way up to the amazing work he's been doing in New Japan. Clearly we were wrong. Clearly it was a shed load that he could do better. But looking back now, you can see why we thought that because I, when he came out to the ring, on the WWE network to his WWE music, which was nothing but annoying. But anyway, he came out and he just had this charisma, this heel charisma that I wanted to reach back 20 years and punch him in the face because he, he didn't have any substance yet. And you could tell he wasn't quite, he wasn't quite Y2J. He wasn't quite in command of what he was doing, but he knew where he wanted to go. And he was so confident in what he was doing that I thought he could, he, he was, you could almost see the feet, um, underneath the water you know like a duck you could almost see the nervousness but he did such a good job of conveying this character that i'm no you know it's no surprise looking back how he went on to wwe quite quickly and then how he became a featured player and then he's had his longevity that he's had i thought it was a curiosity this one it wasn't much of a match it was fine but to watch it all these years later to see what jericho was like then and how that was the very genesis of his career was amazing because you know you got to speculate that if he hadn't have found that spark, he, he wouldn't have lasted long in WCW. We certainly wouldn't be talking about him now. Maybe um, I just thought it was really interesting. Yeah, and I've got to say, first off, Dean, it's the fucking lion tamer. It's no walls of Jericho. This was the f- of course. I this was the far yes. superior version where he'd stick his leg right on the back, and obviously it does require a little bit more legitimate discomfort for the guy taking it which is why I think a lot of guys in WWE just didn't want to do it but um, yeah that, this was his this was his awesome version of the finisher back then um, also yeah, it's a little bit of a disjustice to his character as well because yeah he was really rocking with the heel turn but this was this match with Arkea was the probably the, the lowest point at least pay-per-view wise of this six month tear he went on after turning heel you know, we, we covered the first Thunder where he was throwing the strops. He turned heel on Ray, won his title, and then just went through. And you'll notice if you watch this show on the on the uh, on the network, he takes part of Iokea's costume with him afterwards oh. because he has trophies. He has uh, Mysterio's mask, I believe. He has something from Dean Malenko. He has no, he has Hoovy's mask, and he had a I think he had a prosthetic leg for Ray because he he, he basically. Like took out his knee because he needed surgery. So he had all these trophies, which was another part of his gimmick that was so funny. Um, but yeah, like at this point, I don't think he was injured. But Malenko did that thing where he lost 
to Jericho in a title match at Uncensored, the previous pay-per-view. And he infamously said he got wound up a little bit by Mean Gene. Uh, and he said he was going home. And we wouldn't see him again until uh, Slambury, the one after this, which we, I can't wait for us to cover that because that Battle Royal and subsequent title match were one of the best moments of 98 WCW. That's where he unmasks and he's dressed as a Cyclope. Yeah, oh, man, I that was love brilliant. that. That's one of my... That is, that is the... Best Dean Milenko angle ever. So legitimate radio silence for two whole months, and this match with Arakea between him and Jericho was in the interim of that. So basically, Jericho's carrying the feud and his gimmick and the title all in one go. And we, everyone who's watched a bit of WCW knows Arakea is basically a lump of fucking dead weight to carry around but you know he, he he's he is what he's got but it's another thing that comes into this whole um glass half empty glass half full people look back at this and think yo this was this was the genesis of jericho this was when he was really good but this was actually you know if you if you piled up all, all of the moments of his of his hill cruiserweight title reign this was probably one of the ones that was down there because he was kicking rocks until the Malenko thing kicked off and also, you know, we've we've talked about Benoit and Booker T, but and again, this might be the benefit of hindsight. But Jericho is another guy that WCW had and just wouldn't push past a certain level, and then lost him to WCW. Yeah, very, very much, you could almost say like Steve Austin, talented wrestler that they they only saw at a certain level, wouldn't push any further. WCWF took him and and pushed him to the moon. Yeah, I mean, like like with all of them, the, the, the Goldberg in the first match, Booker, Benoit, Jericho, there's that whole breath of fresh air thing. Um, they're, they're, they've all got things about them that, as I said, connects with the crowd, and that's the first thing, because, you know, we say about Benoit and Booker T, and we know Jericho's also a good wrestler, but Goldberg isn't, and yet he's still in that same sort of thing. It's that connection with the crowd, and the fact that, yeah, you know, as good as the NWO was when it got... The whole patio we we spoke about with with Quackenbush and the previous one where there was that whole stigma of having great WCW pay-per-views and then shitty main events, yeah. and these guys offered promise to be the ones to to break that, and so that 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 added to their aura, I think. So it was it definitely weren't all hindsight. There was there was something in the present where, and and like you touched upon, it's not just oh yeah, cut, you know, cut all the old guys out and replace them with these people wanted. Hogan Goldberg people wanted Booker T versus Scott Hall Kevin Nash people wanted to they wanted to see the established guys against the new guys you want to see that and that's why we always lament the two times they fouled an old versus new rivalry once in 99 and once with Vince Russo's new blood millionaires club brain fart such a shame because that's what people wanted at that point yeah, but that involves the uh, old guard putting the new guys over, doesn't it? Yeah, they wouldn't even they wouldn't even share a ring with them. That's the crazy part. Even if they were going over, they wouldn't do it. Or as Randy Savage famously put it, nope, nope. Mind you, that was against Disco Inferno. So. Uh, backstage at the WCWWrestling.com area, Raven cuts a brief promo on DDP ahead of their US title match. The NWO music hits once more, and it's time for our tag match. Buff Bagwell and Scott Steiner v. Rick Steiner and Lex Luger. So uh, Bagwell comes down to the ring with a flimsy-looking cast on his ring, which Shivani says is not a real injury. Um, how he can recognise that, he can't recognise Vincent when he puts a hat on, is beyond me. Um, it's called Jay- racism, Dean. 
Oh, that's the one. Sorry, yes. JJ Dillon comes to ringside as Bagwell claims to not have a doctor's release to wrestle, even though he's in his wrestling gear. JJ uh, Dillon has a noted orthopedic surgeon at ringside, apparently, uh, who checks Bagwell over. The doctor checks his dressing, and Bagwell gets angry, grabbing Dillon by the tie, showing there's nothing wrong with his hand. Um, to me, this belongs in Butlins rather than on a pay-per-view. Um, the babyface has come out accompanied by Ted DiBiase, who serves no purpose in this match, but babyface managers rarely do. Um, Rick runs to the ring as Scott jumps out, and Rick is attacked from behind by Bagwell. Uh, looks to me like Rick um, Rick Steiner is uh, is wearing a, a singlet inspired by Roy of the Rovers. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so he's he's got he's got the Melchester Rovers kit on basically. Um, apologies to our American friends. Just put that into Google. It's safe for work. Don't worry. Um, Scott jumps Rick from behind and tags him while his brother is in trouble. He quickly tags out again. There are more t- quick tags by the heels to a subdued Rick. So while we are seeing Rick Steiner be Scott Steiner, it's never on an, an equal or even footing. Um, Rick finally makes the hot tag to Luger after several unsuccessful attempts. The crowd finally come alive. Luger goes for the torture act, but is cut off by Scott. Rick wallops Bagwell with a clothesline, angrily faces off with Scott, who swiftly exits the ring. Luger gets Bagwell in the rack for the win. It's a pretty nondescript by-the-numbers match. We don't really get to see the two Steiner brothers facing off, so that can carry on for another pay-per-view. Um, just, yeah, just just a, an average match to me yeah um i don't really have anything to add on it i basically didn't write any notes for this at all it's the one match i didn't write anything down for i watched this less than 24 hours ago and i honestly couldn't tell you any of the beats <laughs> apart from apart from tony and tony's running on mike today talking about how scott has never attacked rick face to face that's literally the only thing i can remember from the match itself other than rick's singlet um yeah, it was. Yeah, nothing. Yeah. Sorry, no, nothing, nothing to add. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Liam. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I wanna like this. You know, they, they really, they, you can't say you didn't try with this whole Steiner versus Steiner feud. Heaven knows if you if you touched base with us on the, the the Bash at the Beach and the Halloween Havoc podcast from this year, it went six more fucking months. But yeah, and that's that says all you need to know. They they, they did everything they could to draw this out and make it epic and yet I think the sad reality is no one really gave a fuck about watching Rick Steiner versus Scott Steiner so as a result it should have been like your typical modern pro wrestling thing where it got blown off within two or three months like at the absolute longest yeah I've got a little chuckle out of the uh the hijinks at the beginning with trying to cry at the match but yeah it didn't connect with the crowd at all and didn't really work no one cared it's a shame I, I do like goofy little skits like that it will never I don't think it will ever get as good as some of the best ones such as, off the top of my head you think of like Jerry Lawler at SummerSlam 93 crying out of the match with Bret Hart you know when you do that right it's brilliant but this is not what you'd classify as this being done right and yeah stay tuned for another six pay-per-views in 98 where they promise you Steiner versus Steiner and they don't deliver and they wonder why pay-per-view buy rates went through the fucking toilet the following calendar year yep good old WCW uh, we go to Mean Gene, who is being as vague as he possibly can about the NWO to try and shill the WCW hotline. 
And then we go to match number seven, which is a special unadvertised match. And Liam, what do we know about special unadvertised matches? They're absolute dog shit. And the crowd. Oh, oh, the crowd. Yeah, the, the crowd don't care. But can I just go back to my dog shit part? Because yes. this one really is bad, which is disappointing considering who's in it. It is La Parker versus Psychosis. Uh, I do love La Parker's ring entrance playing chair guitar. Um, so, yeah, the crowd aren't paying any attention to this because it's advertised as unadvertised. And, I mean, the purpose of this is essentially to bring the crowd down and give them the chance for a, a bathroom break before the big hitters come on. Um, Psychosis nearly loses balance, leaping to the top rope for a hurricane run. He lands a plancher or suicide dive, as WCW calls all flying moves to the outside. Um, I feel sorry for them because they're basically risking their necks with aerial moves to the outside and they're being performed in, in virtual silence. It is wrestling in a library. Um, cut a long story short, and the Parker gets tangled up in the rope. Psychosis hits the top rope leg drop for the win. A short but relatively spectacular match, but no one really cares about it. I seem to, I seem to like the match more than you did, Liam. Yeah, you certainly did. I mean, the, the sad thing for me is like the, these guys... I might I might be generalising here, but it, it's said that you know the, the lucha libre style is built upon a, 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 a big ability to improvise in the ring. Generally, you don't get much micromanagement or heavily rehearsed uh, sequences. So whatever notice they've been given, and by all accounts from like the Observer, that it, it really was a thrown together situation, maybe because of bad timing or whatever. Because we know WCW. Notoriously bad at timing their pay-per-views, but yeah, they they just couldn't cope here. And another thing about it is, as you said, when you when you have a match on to to cool the crowd off a little bit, the idea is is you you put it, not only do you put it on before the big hitters, but you put it on after something that's really pumped the crowd up. So you are all the way you are manipulating the reactions of your crowd. You bring them up and then you guide them back down, ready to bring them back up again. And they've just watched this flat sideshow of a of a tag match that failed to deliver the one thing that the fan base really wanted for a brief period of time until they dragged it out too long which was Steiner versus Steiner so the crowd weren't there to begin with and when you have a calling off match for an already insipid crowd you get exactly what you're getting here uh, yeah I you know, I've always had a soft spot for these two guys, especially La Parker. Um, so seeing him on the pay-per-view was fantastic. And I thought they put on a decent match. I agree with you, Liam. It was clearly designed for the reason um, of, of giving everyone a little breather, giving them a bathroom break. But they, they just didn't need it. The crowd didn't need bringing down at that point. So if you do take the crowd down from a high point, you get a decent reaction. If you take the crowd down from where they were, you get silence. Um, and we saw that all too often on WCW pay-per-views at this time. And I, it's a shame because these two guys have both got such personality under those masks. I, I watched this and I haven't seen these two um, in a match for you know a good long while, actually, a few months. And I, just, I could watch them wrestle forever. It's not like they do anything particularly exciting, but they're just fun to watch. And how you can present a match with those two guys and have the reaction they got. You can literally hear the crowd shuffling in in the state in the arena which i don't think i can't remember last time hearing that it was just total silence um so fair play to them for for putting a, such a decent match on in the circumstances 
But uh, and one, to tell you what, one thing that annoys me, the Parker in yellow, what's that all about? It, lo- it looks like someone's had a wee on him. <laughs> it, looks, it, lo- it looks like someone's taken a He-Man baddie and, and a toy company want to sell extra action figures they want to do it. So, so they just recolor the original figure and stick a different color chair with him. Le Parker's white, black and white, he's got to be, all the time. Yeah, yeah. And, and to think, three months before this, sold out 1998, I believe it was the opener where they had a eight-man lucha match to, to kick off a pay-per-view. And Le Parker finished that match as one of the most overmen in the company. I'm not even exaggerating, because he did his thing where he just blasted like everyone, including his own teammates, with a chair. Then did his goofy little strut, and the crowd were eating it up with a spoon at a time where WWE's product was really cool and popular and doing great ratings and drawing big crowds. And he looked like a guy who would be on. You know, I'm not saying he's going to replace Hogan or anything, but he looked like he'd be a fixture on pay-per-view. He, he's a guy who'd done enough to be considered in the same breath at one point as a Booker T, a Chris Benoit, etc, etc. But yeah, it all fell flat because his bookings were always inconsistent and he'd have matches like this where things would fall apart quite easily. Also, I've I've been I've tried to look it up without any success. I'd love to know what La Parca means in Spanish because it doesn't seem to translate on any kind of Google translate. It must mean something. So if anyone listening speaks, what, Spanish, wasn't it a great song? You know, La 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 Parca. La Parca. Ah, that was La Banda, I know. That translates as to do the goat, which is which has strange connotations in itself. We like to so, do the goat. Yes. Yeah, sorry, Paul, you were saying. I was. I thought it was the uh, Mexican musical chairs champion. I thought that's what it translated as. Yeah. That'd be great. If you <laughs> I'm not entirely serious about that. Well, I'm going to take you take it to uh, face. That's down. it now. It's gospel. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's how. That's how the internet <laughs> works. Etched in stone. Get on Wikipedia. Yeah. Um, actually, that reminds me of a story. It's nothing to do with wrestling at all, but um. You know, uh, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Urban Dictionary. Yes. Hmm. There is a friend of a friend who has a word in there that they that he entirely invented just for a laugh, and it's got itself into Urban Dictionary. Uh, it's the word long, L-O-N-K. Uh, and um, it was simply because every time he kept typing the word link, he would type it as long because the I and the O are next to each other on the keyboard. And um, he just decided one day to send it into Urban Dictionary, and it's still in there to this day, that saying that uh, long is to shit yourself during sex. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he completely made it up. Anyway, should we move on? Um, thanks if you're still listening. Uh, we go to the broadcast desk where uh, Bobby Heenan is doing a great job of hyping up how Randy Savage is injured and he's he's had a cast on his wrist and that's come off and he's had bad ribs and whatever else but you know, he, therefore he is dangerous. Um, you know, someone that's got their back to the wall is more dangerous than, than someone who hasn't. They then also speculate about what could happen in the forthcoming baseball bat match and the power struggle within the NWO. So this is the first little break between the action we've had and this is just because we need to set up the struck the pole for the uh, baseball bat on the pole match. Bro. Which is, bro, which is, well, it's between Kevin Nash and, Ro- and Hulk Hogan and Roddy Piper and the Giant. But I was going to say, this is this is the Bischoff era, isn't it? It is, but anytime anything you could loosely relate to Vince Russo gets mentioned, I'm sorry, but that's exactly what's happening on every Fair episode enough. ever. Bro. 
because yeah, it's a something on a pole match that hasn't been put by, by Vince Russo. So the idea of this is that the first person to get the bat down can use it legally, although I'm sure others can or will use it illegally too. Um, what a great another because WCW great spot is that Tony Giovanni notes how Nash and Hogan are entering the ring separately, you know, and causing more speculation about trouble in the in the ranks of the NWO. Shivani says the reason they're coming down separately is because Hogan comes out to voodoo child. So, of course, Hogan <laughs> comes out to the exact same music that Nash has just come out to. Brilliant. That's only on the WWE Network version. That's only because they don't have the rights to voodoo child, so they'd redub the NWO version over his music. Oh, is that what it is? So I suspect on the original pay-per-view, he did come out to that song. But how sad is it that you would find it utterly conceivable that those though just didn't have a clue what the <laughs> hell was going on? Because we have covered many legitimate scenarios already in just 13 prior episodes. You're right. It was, it was entirely conceivable, yeah. Oh, dear. Um, Eric Bischoff is announced as accompanying Hogan to the ring, but is nowhere to be seen. There you um, go. The faces. There you go. That's, that's another big typical WCW moment. I feel I feel slightly vindicated now. <laughs> uh, the faces come out together. Piper is looking intense. He's looking in tremendous shape, whereas Giant is looking a bit porky in his announcements. 501 pounds. Uh, Piper goes straight for the bat. Um, I'm imagining any of these guys managing to climb the pole, but let's see what happens. It's starting off at least as, as a normal tag match in as much as there's one person in the ring, one person on their tag rope. Um, Hogan takes off his weightlifting belt, chokes Piper with it. He then climbs the pole, but Giant pulls his tights down and whips his bare ass with it and puts Hogan over his knee and spanks him. Once again, this is something straight out of Butlin's on a pay-per-view. And Hogan sells it. That's because Hogan is a crap heel and just wants to do panto-style comedy. He sells the spank. I just want to emphasise that part. He sells the spanking better than he sells most offence that you see him receive <laughs> in any era of his career. Maybe, maybe Giant was really laying those spanks in. Yeah, maybe Hogan likes it. Maybe, you know. Um... Nash gets in the ring with a, a hurt Piper and points to the Giant. The two big men face off. Giant's got some good speed behind him at this time of his career. Nash gets the Giant in the corner, uses the same plodding offense he uses in every match. Uh, nobody's tried going for the bat for ages. Both Nash and Giant go for a big boot. They both connect and both go down at the same time, which is quite a good spot. Um, Hogan and Piper are back in going toe-to-toe. Giant connects with a running drop kick that sends Nash over the top rope. Piper puts Hogan in a sleeper hold, but Hogan makes the ropes. Giant then helps Piper climb the pole, um, and Piper grabs the bat in a display of teamwork. But as Piper grab gets the bat, Hogan grabs it out of his hands and throws it to the floor. Brilliant. And then the disciple, Ed Leslie, brings his own bat to the ring, so Hogan hits Giant with it. Why not just have the bat that was in the... Oh, Dean, you know the answer to this. And funny enough, I think we covered this the last time we had Benson on the show. It's because it's in Hogan's contract that Ed Leslie gets to have a significant spot on the fucking pay-per-view. Oh, yes. And Common also, sense uh, be damned. Yeah. And also, there's one there's one, um, there's one, one close-up of the bat um, from like the, the top side down, where it's blatantly, obviously, made of foam. So, yeah, Hogan hits Giant with the bat, but then misses Piper and hits Nash. 
by mistake, or does he hit him by mistake? Um, Piper grabs the bat, chases Hogan with it. Back in the ring, the disciple tries to grab the bat from Piper. He then throws the other bat to Hogan. Hogan nails Piper in the back of the head and gets the win. Afterwards, Hogan encourages Nash to powerbomb the giant, but Hogan then clobbers Nash across the back with the bat as he tries to lift the giant up. Giant recovers, chases Hogan off. It's it's another poor match with strange decision-making. The bat was barely used or mentioned in the match and, and was more for the post-match angle. It was just all a bit kind of meh. Right, This so so what date did this pay-per-view take place? It was um, June 98. Ni- uh, April, April. 19th of April 1998. Not 20 days before you saw WrestleMania 14, okay? Think of the big stars at WrestleMania 14. Think of what that event accomplished in of itself and going forward. And then you look at what WCW is presenting in its big angle uh, in exactly the same time period. And it's absolutely no surprise where the business went. It looks like you've got an adult on the WCW, uh, sorry, the WWF side. And then you turn over to WCW and it's just a bunch of kids had too much Ribena, too many smarties and just don't know what to do with themselves. So they end up running around, you know, screaming at each other and hitting each other for 25 minutes, then wetting themselves. And that's, and that's kind of what I felt watching this match. It, it was just so typical WCW in that it wasn't good. It was just, it wasn't even bad. You had some big personalities in there. And some of the, I I liked seeing Piper and Giant as a team. But it was just so silly. And everything was done to to lead to this Hogan-Nash argument slash split slash slash whatever. And you just look now and you go, Christ, there's no no wonder there was such a disparity in where these two companies were going at this exact point in time because how anyone in WCW thought this was credible storytelling, I just haven't got a fucking clue. Like, how does this get past any decent creative mind? It's just nonsense. Like, from having Leslie in there, from having the the Hogan bat hit on Nash that was the most obvious thing in the world. Look, Here's a good example of it. You know when um, you mentioned it, Dean, when uh, Piper and Giant both went up to the top rope to get the bat? I can't have been the only one who, even though knowing what's happened, expected Giant to put his arm hand around Piper's throat and choke slam into the mat. I know what happens, and I was still expecting that because WCW. I've got to say, I wasn't expecting that, but I was expecting Lex Luger to turn on Rick Steiner in their tag match when he made the hot tag. Right. There you go. That's the same thing because WCW. Lads, fret not because less than a month after this, the Giant would be a heel back with Hollywood Hogan. So he's just off by a couple of weeks. Yeah. (laughs) There you go. Point proved. Um, Of course he would, yeah, with NWO Hollywood. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, I I just shake my head at this really and go, of all the good stuff that's doing, that's bubbling under on the undercard, this is what sells your pay-per-view. This is an ultimate match in this case, but really the focus point. And it's just shit. So, yeah, it just says everything you need to know about late 90s WCW. This is the third match from the top. But this was the entire talking point of that opening montage. We'll get to it when we get to the main event. But we find ourselves focusing on this at the end of the pay-per-view, even though it's two other guys in the main event, because, yeah. you know, Hogan. And yeah. there, there's your answer. That That is why it... and And... They actually expected people to keep coming back for it. 
We will, uh, yeah, hold park that thought. We will, we will come back to it. So it's now time for match number nine. It is a, it's Ravens rules match for the WCW United States title as Diamond Dallas Page defends against Raven, and the winner of this match gets to be the sacrificial lamb for Goldberg tomorrow night. Um, now Raven comes out to no music. Did that actually happen in the original, or was that just because it sounded exactly like? Um, um, he he had he had no music for a while, and there there are um, moments where he gets a dub over and they use his WWE Raven theme. But yeah, for a, for a long time they right. just had him with the with the with the no music entrance, which as guys like um, Tommaso Ciampa are showing can really work if done right. If done right, but it yeah. just sounds. Seems a bit weird. Well, he's Raven. He's 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 the yeah. outsider. He's the dweller. I, I liked it, yeah, but then well, I also really liked the entrance theme he did eventually get. So, didn't he have a theme that was just a blatant rip off of a proper tune as such? Like, because obviously DDP it was had, it was uh, come as you are. But I really liked it. Um, I mean, we'll we'll go in depth on this. I'm sure on plenty of our theme tune editions because a lot of my picks will be rip-offs because some of them were good rip-offs yeah. uh but yeah case in point these two guys here both ripped off nirvana and both are very good memorable entrance themes despite that cool so um raven's got the belt but ddp is the champion raven's just stolen the belt previously uh and this was where they had they had a great angle on in a, um an mtv show where ddp was being interviewed on the sofa and raven just <laughs> came out of nowhere and twats him across the head with something I seem to remember yes and there was a music video that featured them brawling as well if I remember correctly because it still sticks in my mind to this day where basically Raven hits Paige Paige goes down and all the hosts they sell it brilliantly they sell, they sell it better than wrestling people sell it because they're just <laughs> like there's this really uncomfortable silence like an oh oh god oh dear what's happened there it's almost like a a peter griffin oh no kind of reaction and it makes it feel real because their reaction isn't over the top it's, it's brilliant but anyway i digress um page starts off very fast and intense page, uh, he lands an impressive looking slingshot plancher to the outside uh, onto both Raven and Sick Boy, who's uh, accompanying Raven. Shivani mentions that the main event tonight is a no DQ match, and, and this is basically also a no DQ match under a different name. And the last match was pretty much no DQ, and the last pay per view was called Uncensored. Um, I would ask if they actually think these things through, but we we know they don't. Mm. So. Um, they brawl to the stage. DDP climbs on top of the uh, stagecoach that's part of the set, jumps onto Raven, landing on some nicely placed hay bales. Page is getting, sorry, Raven is getting battered by Page all around the Spring Stampede set. This is essentially a Raven ECW match in, in a WCW setting in a larger arena. The WCWWrestling.com desk gets um, gets bumped or as uh, Shivani comes out with the epic line of he's going to suplex him right on the website <coughs> yep finger um, on the pulse yep. <laughs> well done Tony um, Raven takes DDP to a blatantly fake VIP area that has no sign of anyone having sat there for the entire show but to be fair that's to... probably realistic then <laughs> that's true it's legit they you might have stuck around for the Benoit Booker T and Ultimo Dragon Chavo matches, but um, 
He tries to splash him through the table, but the table doesn't break. Um, Paige gets choked with a bull rope and then is dragged by the rope back to the ring. Raven hits him with a kitchen sink for the campy pun because he's hitting with everything, including the kitchen sink. Fucking hell, someone actually thought of that. Gets a two count. The fans chant for DDP. And again, in this, and I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll get to this in a moment, but you can really, you know, you can really see that Paige's stock with the fans is building. And we've got, it is another homegrown style that they are building, to be fair. Um, various members of the flock try to interfere, but all to no avail as DDP fends them all off. Um, Paige hits an awesome-looking diamond cutter to Kidman, but then an unidentified man in a WCW crew T-shirt who looks suspiciously at Horace Hogan and turns out to be Horace Hogan enters the ring and nails DDP with a stop sign, which is lifted straight out of the Raven Dreamer feud in ECW. Raven hits the even flow DDT on DDP for the pin, and he wins the US title for a day. Do you know... This match, or the memory of this match, is the reason I picked this pay-per-view to do it. I mentioned earlier, I just love, I love the flock, and I love the the way that they use their numbers advantage against these faces that um, that Raven otherwise wouldn't have had a chance against. And I think this is a great example, probably the greatest example of it actually of, of the whole period. I thought that DDP and Raven made had really good chemistry together. I think they made for a very good match. I liked um, the interference. You know, obviously sometimes a lot of interference doesn't work, and I've rallied against it in the past, but here it made total sense because that's what the flock is. They're there to help Raven, and if the match is under Raven's rules, then of course they're going to interfere. Um, and he brought everything he could. D- well, sorry, DDP brought everything he could to Raven, and he was matching them until this big bastard comes along and clocks him with a flimsy sheet of aluminium. Um, <laughs> which I, but that's a that's a yeah that's a whole other complaint. You can't really have me with sledgehammers, can you? And with your hand held over them. So yeah, I I really like this. I thought it, this was to me a a shining beacon of the of the ninety eight WCW. These guys. I thought Raven or again with the benefit of hindsight, we knew what happened to him eventually in WCW. But I thought he fit him really well. I thought of all the guys that moved up from ECW to the bigger companies, I'm not talking about the Foley's and uh, Austin's and people like that who just spent sort of some rehabilitation time there. I'm talking about the homegrown ECW stars. I thought he acquitted himself as well as anybody. I thought it was, to me, he, he in my memory and at the time, he, he was a big part of WCW right up there with the NWO. I really liked watching everything he did. And I, I remembered why. I liked this match. I thought it was good. I thought it worked. And obviously, we know what happens the next night. And Goldberg comes in and squashes the hell out of him. But, yep, thumbs up from me. I mean, you say about you know, the chemistry between them. Yeah, they, you know, these two, you think about it, they go back to you know, about five years pre- previously in, in WCW because True. Uh, DDP was, was there, as Diamond does, paid, but, you know, tagging up with Vinny Vegas. Um, and Raven at that time was Scotty Flamingo, and I think I'm right in saying they'd go even further back to like the late 80s, early 90s in Florida as well. So, plenty of um, plenty, plenty of history between the two of them throughout throughout the years. Yeah, and I just, again, I just thought that this is what WCW did so right at the time was putting these guys in situations where both of them came out looking quite good. Uh, the chaos, you know, sometimes the garbage brawls don't work. This one worked for me. And I, yeah, I liked it a lot. 
Oh man, I think I think this is where Schrodinger's stampede is going to reach fever pitch because, yeah, glass half empty, glass half full. It's it's actually really empty for me on this one. And I, I as we've documented, I like DDP, I like Raven. This is a good feud per se, but this match for me was just a bunch of shit happening with no selling and no and if you if you harken back a couple of episodes ago we looked at another spring stampede which was 94 and you had the wild brawl between the nasty boys and cactus jack and max Payne. yes and it's for me there's no comparison because the intensity was there in 94 there was, and obviously they're trying to do this breakneck walkabout brawl, which doesn't entail a lot of selling, but they're they're definitely bringing the fact that they're punch drunk and things like this. This is this is two guys just hitting each other with a bunch of gimmicks, and and then one happens to lay down for the pit. I really struggle to get into this, and what makes it worse is that I know what's coming afterwards when we get to the stage at some point, depending on which guest decides to ask for. I suppose we'll cover Slamboree '98, and as much as I'm looking forward to the Cyclope, Malenko, Jericho stuff. We're also going to have to watch that Bowery death cage match between these two guys, which was like this, but times are a billion, when they're smacking each other in the head with VCRs and then just getting straight back up. So I think for me, the, the feud that kind of came in by way of the Triple Jeopardy match we had to the previous pay-per-view Uncensored, where you had a similar thing, but you had Chris Benoit holding it all together and kind of instilling periods of recovery and things like that on it. And and that match was, was one of the best hardcore matches you'll see in WCW. Uh, you've basically got this without the mortar. And we said about bricks and mortar, funny enough, in the last episode. And... You've got the bricks. You've just got a pile of rubble without the without the cement to keep them together. So for, I just couldn't get into this. And this is a someone who who should be liking this feud, but this match just weren't doing it. I mean, I think you'll be very hard pressed to find a hardcore crazy brawl in a mainstream promotion that rivals the Nasty Boys v Cactus and Max Panks, that was absolutely phenomenal. And that was one of the matches I still remembered, you know, before I watched the match, that show again. But that's that's the point. Yeah, there, there's things that could have been taken from that and applied here, and they weren't. This was a this was literally a garbage brawl, and I think Paul summed it up well in that he went over just how into the characters he were, and I think you, you cut, it's one of the things where you kind of need that to carry you through it. Uh, I had a similar thing because one of my favourite all-time those two pay-per-views is another Spring Stampede in 1999 and they had a hardcore match there between Hack and Bam Bam Bigelow that everyone raves about and I loved it at the time but that hasn't aged well either. You realise um, not only does Hack rip off what they do here with jumping off the uh, the the wagon in the set that they always have with the bells of hay and all that but um, the, the match is basically Hack Sandman doing a bunch of somersaults through shit. So uh, a lot of these things just don't age well at all, unfortunately. And it, for me, this is one of them. And it gets worse with the Barry Cage match. But I always have that memory of um, the uncensored match with Benoit for me did the trick. And as you said, Dean, like the, the, the feud, as a, you take the, the actual matches away, the feud was, it was cool, it was hip, it was one of the things that Bischoff for a little while had 
going quite well where he would do these things like spring breakout or you know he'd have these these, these nitro parties he'd have these celebrity tie-ins he, he had his finger on the pulse for a little while and this feud was an example of that but no i'm not a fan of the match yeah, differing opinions there. Okay. I, t- I told you, this this pay-per-view can yeah. really do that. So just before we get to the main event, no, I don't want to get you to call the WCW hotline, but do you just want to tell you about a couple of upcoming events uh, that I've got in my calendar that you may be interested in. 22nd of July at the Rochester Casino Rooms, IPW presents Fight for Your Right. We have got guests of uh, Hurricane Helms, Shane Helms, former WCW star, uh, filthy Tom Lawler and Chelsea Green, also known as Laurel Van Ness in Impact Wrestling. And then a couple of uh, dates in Kayfabe Events Diaries. Sue Young, who is the current Impact Knockouts champion, she is doing the Undead Tea Party Tour, which uh, I'm somewhat intrigued as to what's, uh, what's going to happen to me in that uh, event. But we have got two days there. 27th of the 7th in our hometown of Worthing, and then the 28th of the 7th, which is Saturday in London, and then back in Worthing, 1st of September, uh, an evening with Abyss and Joseph Park. No, I don't know how that's going to work either. I'll find out near the time. And of course, Paul, you've got your evening with Jeff Jarrett tour. What are those dates? We have. So we start on the 23rd of July in London. Then we move up to Edinburgh on the 24th. The 25th, we're in Sheffield. And we finish up in Cardiff on the 26th. And you can buy tickets to that now from ringsideworld.co.uk or hookedonevents.co.uk. Still plenty available. Marvellous. Right, let's crack on with the main event. It is a no-disqualification match, which was just made at the beginning of the pay-per-view, because why do you want people to buy it, uh, of Randy Savage versus the champion Sting. It's time for Michael Buffer. Yay. Uh, Savage is accompanied by Miss Elizabeth, which means that only three out of ten matches haven't had someone accompanying someone else to the ring or interfering in the match. Um, Savage's arm is no longer in a cast, but it's heavily taped up. He's looking in great shape for a man of 47 and is wrestling with his shirt off, and we all know that means. No drug testing in WCW. Um, Savage jumps Sting as he enters the ring, and you've never seen Michael Buffer exit a ring so quickly in all your life. In a nice touch, in the opening minute of the match, Savage lands a big right hand on Sting but then sells his own hand and risk of the previous injury. Uh, they brawl up and up the ramp and into the set, you know, exactly like they did in the last match. No wonder this crowd aren't responding much. Back at ringside, Sting misses a stinger splash to Savage, who's propped up against the guardrail. After more brawling at ringside, referee Charles Robinson gets pulled into the way of a stinger splash in a spot that's basically exactly the same as the one that uh, Benoit and Booker did earlier on in the show, and looks even more telegraphed than that one. Um, although... Credit to Charles Robinson, he sells it better than Nick Patrick sells a ref bump. Elizabeth then gets in the ring and weakly hits Sting in the back with the wrong end of a folding chair. Savage then pulls Elizabeth in the way of a Stinger splash, which I think is the first time I've ever seen her take a bump. You'd also think by this point in time, Sting would think, I'm not having much luck with the Stinger splash. Maybe I won't try it for a third time, but there you go. Um... So Savage then waffles Sting from behind with a chair and lays uh, Sting's head down on that chair. Savage climbs to the top to go for the elbow drop, but Hulk Hogan appears out of nowhere and shoves Savage off the top. 
Sting reverses a vertical suplex attempt into a scorpion death drop. Kevin Nash comes down and hits Sting from behind with a forearm, followed by a jackknife powerbomb. He drags Savage over, puts him on top, drags referee Charles Robinson over, who counts to three before slumping unconscious again. Uh, we have a new WCW World Heavyweight Champion in Randy Savage in a main event that went 10 minutes. And when you consider that we had an extra bonus match that no one gave a shit about put in the middle of it, surely they could have had a main event that went longer than 10 minutes. Um, Hogan protests in a campy and unbelievable way just to cement his reputation as a really, really terrible heel. And that is basically our main event. The power struggle between Hogan and Nash continues revolving around the world title that neither man holds. And ultimately, I guess this would lead to the formation of the NWO Wolfpack, who feuded with NWO Black and White. Do you know what my favourite takeaway from this match was? Do you remember the bit where Hogan, uh, sorry, Savage hit Sting with the hay bale? Right. And Savage, and then Tony Schiavone spends the next two minutes selling the hay bale and saying how it would be abrasive to your skin and get straw in your eyes. And, it's in folklore, isn't it? And it's like. Okay, then. And really, I don't know if you've ever felt a hay bale, but they're rather heavy things. And I don't fancy being hit around the head with one. So I just thought, you know, you're in another match, you're having guys hit with these thin, flimsy aluminium stop signs, and that's fine. That's a finishing. But if someone gets hit with a hay bale, you know, it's quite a dense thing and probably weighs about three quarters of a stone. And you feel the need to talk about how it gets the straw and the dust in your eyes. And that's why it's effective. I was like, well, priorities are skewed there. But anyway, I like the effort. Um, no, in all seriousness, this was soap opera garbage, wasn't it? It was the exact reason WCW pay-per-views in this era get tarnished with that main event, bad, mid-card, good stigma because it was true. Um, it was designed to set up an angle the next night on Nitro. And if I'd paid for that at the time, I'd be pretty pissed off. But then again, if you're still paying for that at this point in 1998, you've had your fingers burnt more than once. So we're kind of more for you, really. So if people aren't aware, just remind us, Liam, what happened the next night on Nitro, apart from Bill Goldberg winning the US title? Oh, Hogan won the fucking title book. So were you expecting more fanfare there? It can't, it, it's, it's hard to put much fanfare on it because that's literally pretty much what always happens. The thing is, is, is Savage went into this. It was well known that he would need some serious time off to heal some injuries. And it surprised a lot of people at the time that he won the belt, but then, oh, well, he must be losing next time. Oh, shit, yeah, that's what's going to happen. And they had Bret Hart turn heel to cement it, as the whole thing was was that battle lines were being drawn in the NWO, which just so happened to include guys like Lex Luger and Bret Hart, who just a few months ago were anything but any sort of NWO allegiance and the whole storyline just completely fell off a cliff where everyone was NWO so you, you know they're, they're well aware of the popularity of the gimmick it's selling great t-shirts but they just never knew when to pack it in and this is the sign of that because you know the the whole Sting thing which we've covered countless times before Sting should have been the end of the NWO you move on to new things you've got Bret Hart in the company now you've got Goldberg bubbling under. Ric Flair is always popular. DDP's coming through. You've got plenty of guys who can work as heels to, to serve as foils in this situation. You've got plenty to be working with. And yet we're getting not only more NWO stuff, but specifically more stuff that revolves around Hogan. 
and that's how you this is the moment where you realise that WCW was just going to keep doing this until they died and it was merely just a fucking coincidence that they struck gold with Hill Hogan at the start so that's a shame but also it's the fact that the pay-per-view is essentially been the setup for the free television show because it was all about trying to get ratings better than the Monday Night Raw, which it often was, which is which is why buy rates went down so badly. Whereas yeah. WWE, at the very least, offered you, you know, big moments in the in the life and times of Stone Cold Steve Austin, big moments for the Mick Foley's, the Rocks. Again, more more new stars all being made. Even with Russo writing, they were having big payoffs at the at the pay per view. And hell, well, you got to give Russo one bit of credit, where Stu. The Survivor Series tournament was fantastic. That's a sort of time where you want to see Russo-esque writing come in with the weaves and the bobs and the swerves. It's the one time it did work, but they made it work that year. Meanwhile, WCW just keeps going to that same well, thanks to creative control and whatever. And the funny thing is, is I didn't think this match was terrible. I think Savage and Sting were quite compatible with each other. Uh, Sting had had some you know, some rough matches. People were talking about his, you know, his, his rust because he spent so much time off due to the angle that got him over it all over again. Their brawling was good. The overbooking wasn't. And the fact that it signifies the end of Sting as the champion when it should have been so much more, just to go back to what we had before the rise of Sting in the Crow gimmick, is just it's just depressing to be honest and for me no matter how many angles you can look at this pay-per-view and, and maybe also this main event from to see oh wow this is a this was a cool time you know this was a good time to be watching it it's a good pay-per-view for me I, I i i think this this will not go down in memory as a good pay-per-view well i mean I, yeah i would say it it wasn't a great show but there are plenty of other pay-per-views that were worse and made less sense than this which i don't know if that's a damning indictment of wcw or not but um well this podcast by design is a damning indictment of WCW. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah feel free to lump on yeah um you know i'd say benoit booker was the best match by far um even that had a bit of a, a, an odd finish, but um, and it, it was the era of interference all round. Yeah, you know, as we said, with with even on the other side, with dude love Steve Austin match that unforgiven the next day, the next week. Um, uh, yeah, interference all round to protect egos, basically, wasn't it? So um, yeah, well that 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 match pretty much sums up the the, the whole Austin dude love thing. You do it with the right people, and the same overbooked garbage suddenly looks like treasure. So we yeah. see exactly what the problem is here. It's it's not the you you know this is ninety eight. Of course, there's loads of mad on the fly stuff, but at least one company was doing mad on the fly stuff with things that people wanted to pay money to see. Yeah, yeah. Paul, what was your verdict overall then on Spring Stampede '98? I I finished watching the show and please please what I watch. You know, it was it was overall it was as good as WCW was in that period. I think. I thought there were some enjoyable matches in the aforementioned Raven, DDP, Satin, Goldberg, and Booker T. Benoit matches. I like Jericho. I like the Parker Hooventude um, in certain ways. I thought the main events were pretty garbage. You know, waste waste of some big personalities just to, like you say, set up future Nitro. So that was disappointing, but... Look, I'm you know I'm I'm not going to be reaching back to this anytime in the next ten years to watch again. But 
it was a nice walk down memory lane and um, it, it was a good representation of what that period in time WCW did well, which wasn't a lot. I, I, I'm aware I'm damning it with faint praise almost, and I might be reaching to try and say I enjoyed it, but yeah, I, it was it was inoffensive and mostly fine, which Thank is you. a review to go on the poster of any great <laughs> pay-per-view. Inoffensive but mostly fine. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, before you depart us, Mr. Benson, mm. we have, uh, as always with our guests, we ask for a theme tune uh, from the vaults of WCW. What have you chosen for us? Well, last time you guys graciously had me on, I made an error. I made a lazy, uninspired error. And I went for the NWO theme because, frankly, I couldn't think. I was like a rabbit in the headlights and I couldn't think of anything else. I'm going to write that wrong this time. came out for a singles match to this and it was just absolute boss yes with a green yeah we've, we've had this theme on retainer actually for, for a little bit because whenever whenever guests haven't been available for the show or or a guest just couldn't really offer and a couple of guests have, have not been out until the very last minute They're like oh actually I'll go with this one uh, Dean and I always prepared and it, it was Dean's turn to to pick one of our own as a contingency and I think this was Dean's contingency pick so it's good to get on there because it is one of those as you guys said this theme is one of the top and we'll one these days when we do this feature we're going to have to try and argue the toss over maybe a top 5 WCW theme songs but I would put this one in the 5 mm-hmm. uh, yeah it sums up Arn- I agree with the whole more Arn Anson than the Horseman but I thought it was more than serviceable as a Horseman theme but I thought they you know a couple of years after this they captured the Horseman thing a little bit better because they they did that that alternate version didn't they with the actual um, horse sound effects at the beginning a bit more of a yes. yeah yep. that, that that one in retrospect because it came afterwards I think got more associated with the group and this one got retconned as purely unanswered but yeah it was used as both and my personal memory was um, Fall Brawl 95 I remember when 
Arn and Ric Flair had a one-on-one -on -one match and I can't wait to recap that one one day uh, and Arn comes out to this and then Ric Flair comes out as he always does to his theme song and it was just everything from the entrances to the face-to-face -to, -face to the match itself was just this is why I like pro wrestling awesome indeed great pick Mr Benson thank you very much for joining us it's been a pleasure best of luck with the Jeff Jarrett tour um, I know hopefully Liam will see you in London I'm not sure about me London on a school night at my age you know it's a big ask but, uh, <laughs> best, best of luck with that thank you guys and thank you very much for having me cool well that wraps it up for another episode so thank you ever so much for downloading us please if you like this do rate and review us on itunes and spread the word you can follow us on twitter at becausewcw on facebook.com forward slash becausewcw on behalf of my colleague liam hat this is the twisted genius dino so thanks for listening and i'll see you ringside